I V M. It's the year 498 CE, and you and I have managed to overcome those rather irritating palace guards that we met in the last episode and get entry to the palace for Jane. Okay, we actually snuck in with the delivery of elephant fodder, but it doesn't matter. We're sitting in the rafters of a large square hall now. It's made of wood and burnt brick, and it's about thirty meters across both sides. And below us are fancy aristocratic people sitting everywhere on comfortable plush cushions on tiered seats similar in design to a modern theater. All of them are being fanned by attendants, and it took them all ages to find their seats, entering according to a strict courtly protocol. We can see that the amount of jewelry they're wearing seems to be more the closer they're sitting to the stage. In fact, there's even a couple of familiar faces from the courtesans district down there sitting next to their wealthy patrons. But there's a bit of an edge in the air. There's a new Huna warlord far away to our northwest in Punjab. He hasn't really done anything yet, at least not to us. He's been too busy minting gold coins, which are really primitive imitations of the beautifully made coins of the Guptas. And despite his assumption of the title of Prakash Aditya, nobody has forgotten the fact that his actual name is Thoramana, a barbarian name if there ever was one. But then Skanda Gupta had died, and there had been a palace coup, and now his nephew wears the heavy golden coronet and gem-studded necklace of the Gupta Emperor, shining in the light reflected off the stage. And earlier this year, Thoramana had declared himself Raja Adhiraja, King of Kings. It was practically a declaration of war. And this play has been arranged as a farewell for some of the emperor's close friends, whom he has appointed as generals to lead a punitive strike against Thoramana. The idea is to infuse them with heroic sentiments or rasas in order to prepare them for the horrors that they will soon see. Let's take our mind off those depressing thoughts. Today we're in for a spectacle. Look at that stage. It's richly covered with wooden carvings of elephants, tigers, and snakes, and on it are artfully placed pillars decorated with green mango leaves and garlands of marigold. There's no painted scenery, though. The imagery of the play will be conveyed to us by ravishing Sanskrit depictions and the gestures and movements of the actors. The entire theater is designed for good acoustics, so that the carefully constructed words that the actors will use will reverberate correctly off the stage and walls and infuse us with the correct emotional states. The walls themselves are covered in white plaster and paintings of creepers and couples in various moods and states. It's the afternoon now. The members of the court have been up since quite early in the morning, and the palace has been buzzing with activity since the early hours. Attendants preparing baths, poets and musicians awakening their patrons with flattering eulogies. Reviews have taken place, decisions have been made, and after a meal and some refreshments, the court has come here psychologically prepared to appreciate the story of strength and energy that the director of the play has prepared for them. There's some quiet chatter as to what to expect today. Now the director steps onto the stage, and the noise dies off. He begins with a benediction to Shiva, which is received with polite exclamations from the glittering court. Then he explains in charming Sanskrit what the play is about, breaking the fourth wall since he pretends to be a part of the imaginary world of the play, a resident of the city where the play is set. Then the actors step onto the stage, and he leaves. The orchestra begins to play. From a room cordoned off behind the stage, cymbals and veenas and drums. 
this isn't a play like anything you or I have seen before. In the first place, nothing the actors do seem naturalistic. Their actions are carefully regulated by complex series of rules and conventions. They dance, they use hand gestures, they place their feet in particular ways. Actors representing upper class people stand proud and tall, take long steps like elephants, whereas actors playing their attendants take shorter steps and hold themselves less high. They wear different kinds of makeup and costumes, use an array of facial expressions. There, an actor is angry, he's rolling his eyes and grinding his teeth. And there, the heroine teases the hero, raising both her shoulders and inclining her head to one side. It doesn't seem like a play, it seems more like a, a dance recital. But if we suspend the disbelief, if we look beyond, if we look carefully at the actors, we can see how exhausting it is. They aren't merely representing the emotions they're supposed to feel using the conventions of the theatrical art. They're actually feeling them intensely. And look at the audience. Their expressions are rapt, crying when the actors represent the emotion of crying, cheering when the actors represent the emotion of cheering. The director and the playwright have fused theater, music, dance, euphonics, poetic meters, things that you and I are used to thinking of as being separate art forms into a single sophisticated emotional experience that would put any modern production to shame. Realistic it is not, but its artificiality is not affected, but calculated, designed to evoke particular responses from those who are trained to watch it. This is high art fused with a pre-modern understanding of human psychology. Look at the future general over there, sitting in the second row with his wife, twirling his moustache, eyes shining. He looks like he's ready to go and duel the Huna king to death right now. But wait, there's a messenger quietly entering the theatre. He's, he's immediately accompanied to the front row where he whispers something into the emperor's ear. The emperor doesn't move, but his face immediately turns as pale as milk. He is controlling his response so the rest of the audience doesn't notice. Then he nods in the direction of the general. The messenger speaks to the man, and then he leaves. The play continues as before. But you and I heard what the messenger said. Raja Raja Toramana Prakashaditya, the Huna who would be emperor of North India, has entered the Ganga Valley with a vast horde. He's heading straight for Mathura. Toramana was by far the most successful of any of the Huna kings who ruled India. In the very first year of his reign as Raja Dhiraja, which was roughly 497 or 498 CE, he struck straight into the Gupta heartland and seized Mathura, the geopolitical key to the Ganga plains. This was a massive blow against Gupta prestige and soon he followed it up by crossing the Yamuna and following the Betwa river into the western territories of the Gupta empire. He headed towards Ujjaini where we spent the last episode. On the way, he attacked the city of Airekena, the refreshing fields, the site of a Gupta imperial mint. Remember that the Gupta emperors called themselves Great Kings of Kings, Maharaja Dhiraja, and appointed loyal followers as Maharajas or Rajas in areas that they didn't directly control. 
Well, here's an inscription from Irekena issued in that same year and carved into a large elaborately carved statue of Varaha, Vishnu in the form of a boar with thousands of gods clinging onto his fur and the goddess Earth holding onto his tusk. Om Victorious is the god Vishnu who has the form of a boar who is the pillar who supports the great house which is the three worlds. In the first year while the maharaja adiraja the glorious toramana of great fame and of great luster is governing the earth this was issued by dhanya vishnu who is the younger brother of the maharaja matri vishnu who has gone to heaven i the maharaja of my own province of airikina have built this stone temple of the divine narayana who has the form of a boar and who ensures the welfare of the universe As the scholar Hans Bakker points out, Dhanya Vishnu seems to have built this temple as a memorial to his brother Matra Vishnu, who was likely killed in battle against Toramana. Dhanya Vishnu, who survived the battle, seems to have decided to serve as Toramana's vassal, which is why he refers to Toramana as Maharaja Dhiraja, indicating that he's accepted his authority. But I mean, here's the interesting thing, right? If Toramana had really been some kind of barbarian conqueror, why would he have allowed Dhanya Vishnu to build a temple to Narayana and also to use his name? It seems that yes, Toramana was interested in defeating the Guptas, but not necessarily in destroying the Gupta Empire itself. Instead, he wanted to take it over to establish a new ruling dynasty that also used Vaishnavism and temples. That's why Dhanya Vishnu seems to use a Varaha symbol to indicate that Toramana. is now varaha whereas as we saw in episode 3 the guptas tried to indicate that chandragupta the second was their varaha it's quite a striking parallel to later north indian conquerors except they unlike toramana also retained ties to their original central asian islamic roots whereas toramana seems to have adopted vaishnavism wholesale In his coins which I mentioned were poor imitations of gupta ones the man literally copies their propaganda wholesale and says the lord of the earth toramana having conquered the earth wins heaven compare that to a coin of chandragupta the second which says vasudham vijitya jayati trividam prithvishwarah punyai the lord of the earth having conquered the earth wins heaven by his meritorious deeds see what i mean Of course just because Dhanya Vishnu submitted to Toramana to save his life and just because Toramana was minting all those coins doesn't mean people are actually falling for all that especially in pre-modern times where you couldn't use social media marketing campaigns politics had a much more local sort of flavor military success was important because it established a deterrent to stop people from doing what you didn't want but much more important was legitimacy binding them together into a shared economic system and more importantly a shared courtly culture what whitney cox calls a shared system of honors and distinctions associated with the charisma of the ruling family The Guptas were militarily successful sure but as we've seen they had an irresistible aura of prestige and charisma tied into temple building religious patronage and economic integration Toramana only had the first in western india where the gupta aura was somewhat weaker and filtered through by local viceroys and governors his strategy kind of worked 
but in the ganga plains proper nobody was falling for it and people seem to have seen him as some kind of barbaric conqueror like samudra gupta except without the talent for propaganda basically and of course toramana had his own domestic political factions to worry about there would have been hona generals and soldiers as well as new south asian recruits who signed up with him for the loot he could offer so off he went to kashambhi a city that had stood since the early vedic period and was even older than ujjaini which controlled trade from the northwest into eastern india toramana decided to send a brutal message this immense square citadel which had a moat 145 meters or about 500 feet wide and a nearly four story high wall encased in 154 layers of brick was completely sacked and destroyed and never really recovered so how does a society react to this sort of trauma how many people had relatives business partners friends lovers in kashambhi who were killed by the hunas how did they respond we can't be totally sure what we do know is the guptas certainly weren't able to respond to them and that's not really surprising so you see the guptas had created an entire culture built around their military prestige and supposed divine favor and now the hunas had shown up and basically shown the entirety of north india that the guptas had been scamming them for the last 200 years now to their credit it's not like the guptas ever really gave up the struggle they just retreated further and further east and every now and then managed to get enough of their vassals together to actually go to war with toramana not that it ever really worked out very well for them because as i pointed out in episode 7 it takes some pretty serious military resources and planning to fight armies that use cavalry archers and now my theory is and this is based totally on personal experience when depressing stuff is going on people search for consolation in creativity i mean why do you think i'm so enthu about echoes creating things connecting to a humanity that is vaster than anything i can experience is what keeps me going right and ancient north indians were i think doing the exact same thing during the hunic wars though obviously their depression wasn't caused by anything as mundane as going to an engineering college and being in a vast metropolis where people interact mostly through social media um okay so what was my point again yes yes consolation and creativity if you look at the art of the gupta period a time when north india was relatively at peace and elites had huge agrarian surpluses to waste when life was really good for poets and sculptors you see art that's joyful blissful delighted with its own sophistication elegant lines artful abstractions a representation of the courtly culture of refinement and aesthetics that the guptas were so enthusiastically promoting but if you look at the first half of the 6th century when toramana was going about challenging the self-satisfied world view of these very same courts you see radically different art forms instead of the spectacularly peaceful looking images of vishnu or buddha that you see in the reign of kumara gupta for example you instead see demonic figures and hans bakker has argued that this violent trauma that toramana inflicted decreased the popularity of vaishnava cults and increased the popularity of the shaivas who promoted a more aggressive world view less oriented towards non violence and more interested in personal advancement than that of the vaishnavas of course i mean that sort of trauma doesn't only appear in sculpture but also in drama 
Now, ancient Indian drama, as I pointed out in the beginning of the episode, is really very different from our modern understanding of it. Why do you and I watch something on Netflix? Because we like the story, because of the cinematography, because we identify with the characters, maybe. Well, that's kind of what ancient Indian playwrights were going for as well, but also not. You see, these fellows had a whole theory of aesthetic experience that you and I are likely only very passably familiar with, based on this brilliant idea called Rasa Theory. Now, what the hell is a Rasa? Basically, Rasa means taste. Now, to the ancient Indian playwright, there are eight Rasas, eight fundamental human emotional sentiments that she would like to invoke. These are the erotic, Shringara, the comic, Hasya, the compassionate, Karuna, the furious, Raudra, the heroic, Veera, the terrible, Bhayanaka, the odious, Bibhatsa, and the marvelous, Adbhuta. And now the sentiments, these things that we feel, are derived from even more fundamental states of being. Love, mirth, sorrow, anger, energy, terror, disgust and astonishment. Now Anirodh, I hear you say, what the hell are you talking about? What about states of being like depression, anxiety, contentment, intoxication, deliberation, tiredness and so on and so forth? To that I say... Anirudh, you clearly have a talent for referring to yourself in the third person and also all these states of being are part of the 33 intermediary states which derive from the mixture of all these states and yeesh, treat yourself and go on a vacation, man. Anyway, so you're an ancient playwright and you know that all emotional states have certain essence and you want to know how to bring out this essence in your creation. Obviously, this Anirudh fellow is of no use in this endeavor whatsoever, so you find some other learned gentleman and Bhaghimantli recites the relevant verses from the Natya Shastra of Bharata, which our drunken friend Bhashpa so rudely made fun of in our last episode. Just as taste results from a combination of various spices, vegetables and other articles, thus do the fundamental states of being when they come together with various other states, becoming a fundamental sentiment, a rasa. Oh, really, Mr. Bharata? I mean, I'm sorry our friend Bhashpa was so rude to you. This is very interesting. Please go on. Really? You young rascal? I know who wrote that dialogue, okay? One day I will get my sagely friends to curse you so you turn into a donkey. Until then, I'm going to use this platform to perform to a new group of spectators. The point is, my dear friends, that rasa, the fundamental sentiment is tasted, experienced. Just as a refined person, while eating food cooked with many spices and utensils, enjoys its taste and experiences pleasure and satisfaction, a refined person would taste the rasa of the fundamental states of being when they see it expressed with words, hand gestures and facial expressions. And are these the only ways to invoke rasa, sir? No. You need a wide selection of spices and utensils to create a taste. So in a play, there should be dance, metrical poetry and prose according to the rasa needed. Actors must wear the right costumes and above all, it should be performed at the right time of day. Romantic plays in the sunset for example, but heroic plays in the afternoon. So what you're saying is, given a careful and a rigorous set of practices, you can deliberately invoke certain rasas and audiences. Is, is that why ancient Indian theatres were so much smaller than Greco-Roman ones? Yes, you need a tightly controlled environment with the right acoustics and lighting. Everything has to be just perfect. 
Hmm, that's, that's an interesting point. Okay, so so tell me something. Why was Kalidasa, the most famous of Sanskrit poets, playing around with Rasa so much? Why is it that he's considered a literary celebrity? Like, what's his deal? Look here, my man. You can only break the fourth wall so often in creative production. Will you shut up and get on with it already? Ah. Uh... Okay, okay, so uh, that's how an ancient Indian playwright sees the world. And perhaps no work of literature expresses both this aesthetic sense and the broader sense of chaos and confusion that engulfed creative types in the 5th and 6th centuries than Kalidasa's Raghuvamsham, the dynasty of Raghu, which is a mythical narrative of the dynasty of the god King Rama. I mean, it's supposed to be mythological, but it's really quite political and there are obvious parallels to the lives of the famous Gupta emperors. The general theme of the work is Shanta, the peaceful rasa, though there's also plenty of Adbhuta. And here's an example. So here Kalidasa is describing Raghu, who seems to be a composite of Samadra Gupta, Chandra Gupta II and also Skanda Gupta. As Indra laid the rainbow down, Raghu raised the bow of victory both endeavouring to obtain more benefits for the populace. And he was by autumn followed, though his royalty it could not match, with the white lotus, its parasol, and its whisks, the flowering grass, with elephants looking like dark clouds and chariots raising clouds of dust. He made the earth look just as the sky and the sky just as the earth. It goes on like this for quite a while and describes Raghu's conquest of the people of Bengal, of the people of the south, the Shakas of the west and the Hunas of the north. Obviously, anyone listening to it at the time would have had no doubts whatsoever as to whom Kalidasa was actually talking about. And though this is A.N.D. Haksa's translation, which is nice, obviously it doesn't do justice to the way Kalidasa plays with the Sanskrit language, making witty puns and double meanings, which become simplified and banal in the translation. Nor does the translation have as much of the music as Kalidasa's actual writing. And as Bharata has told us, the meter and music of the poetry really matters in the way that it evokes particular rasas. Shakespeare gets so much credit for doing it in his bumbling British way in the 16th century, but damn, Kalidasa makes the guy look like a total noob. He's a genius and trust me, I don't use that word lightly. Towards the ending of the Raghuvamsham, Kalidasa seems to be more interested in attacking the current Gupta emperor though, who seems to have been too busy sleeping around since he apparently figured that there was no way to save the empire. He did not listen to the doctors, nor give up the habits hazardous. Even though their faults were visible, it is painful for the senses to forsake agreeable pleasures. The king, afflicted by this illness, his line also then became like a sky with the waning moon, a pond left with just mud in the summer, a lamp with but a sinking flame. See what I mean? And this is just one example. And the dating of the Raghuvamsha is controversial, so don't really take my word for it. If you're interested, we have Hans Bakker's lecture, Monuments of Hope, Gloom and Glory in the Age of the Hunnic Wars, 50 Years That Changed India. Now, let's just come back to the broader theme that I was talking about of Thoramana's attack of North India and what kind of trauma it might have inflicted on North Indian society at the time. Now, we can see that clearly because of the collapse of the Gupta dynasty, it was the end of one politico-economic system, sure. But we've also seen the human costs that maintaining the Gupta imperial structure imposed, the devastating civil wars and massive rebellions that it faced. The smaller regional kingdoms that emerged from the ruins of the empire were better organized, better equipped to coordinate with each other to fight the Hunas. 
and the destruction of these grand old cities led to new ones rising like Sthaneshwara, Vallabhi, Shripura and Kanyakubja. Artists fled established imperial centers and went to these newly emerging courts, creating more diverse and flourishing art forms across a wider geographical landmass. So was Thoramana a disaster for the Guptas? Sure. But was he a disaster to South Asia? I'm not so sure. Like so many things in our history, I don't have the answer. I have only questions. And all I can do, my friend, like so many who have come before me, is create and hope that one day we will find the truth and solace that we seek. I want to hear what you think of Echoes. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at Akanisetti, that's A-K-A-N-I-C-T-T-I, or tag me in an Instagram story. Just search for my name. If you like this podcast, you could also leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM Podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well, at IVM Podcasts.